welcome back to Roots, a Jazz Impressions podcast. Uh, my name's Ollie. My name's Dan. And together we run jazzimpressions.co.uk, a music blog designed as a game of musical ping pong, uh, where we explore musical connections one track at a time. Um, in this podcast, we both pick a track and then we try and map a uh, path of musical stepping stones between those two tracks, um, going via some of the music that we really like, looking to kind of delve deeper into our... Uh, some of our favourite music. For this episode, my track that I've chosen is uh, For Some We Loved by the harpist Dorothy Ashby. And I have picked Ghana by Donald Byrd. Do you want to go first this time, Molly? Yeah, cool. So for my route, I've decided to go uh, from my track, uh, For Some We Love, towards Ghana. And so yes, uh, Dorothy Ashby, for some we loved, it's um, a track off her album The Rubaiyat of Dorothy Ashby, uh, which was an album released in 1970 on Cadet Records. <laughs> Stuck on a Desert Island, uh, the Rubaiyat is definitely an album I would have with me. I mean, it was a, a concept album um, inspired by the Persian poet Omar Khayyam, and his poetry was very popular at the end of the 19th century um, in the English speaking world to the point, you know, with the whole um, movement of Orientalism, things like that. You know, and many people were reading his poetry, and it was almost became a bit of a cult, and there were clubs that were formed, um, Omar Khayyam clubs. I mean, it's a really interesting album. Um, obviously on this album, Dorothy Ashby, that previously it was very much she played harp on all her albums. And it's interesting on this album because you see her start experimenting with the Koto, effectively, for, for anyone who doesn't know, a Japanese horizontal harp. And also on top of that, you've got the use of other kind of unconventional instruments in jazz, things like the kalimba, AKA the thumb piano, um, you hear later in that track, um, and also things like the oboe as well. Again, another instrument that you don't really hear used that much in jazz. I mean, the other example I can think of is Yusuf Latif's Eastern Sounds, mm. which is one of the most famous albums to use the oboe in jazz. And that was from over 10 years um, before, I think it was in the late, the late 50s that he started doing that because he was a real pioneer. Yeah. Um, but that definitely that Eastern, the Eastern influence all through, it comes through all the tracks in this, in this album, some more than others. But the thing I find interesting about it is that at the time, you know, a lot of, a lot of music, be it in, um, well, popular music in, in kind of rock and things like that, but also jazz as well. There were a lot of Eastern cliches and obviously at the time, you know, you had the Beatles and prominent, um, psychedelic groups as well, using the sitar a lot. And in certain cases, it, it can sound really interesting when it's used in a good way. People like John McLaughlin did a really good job at um, playing with real Indian musicians as opposed to just appropriating the sitar and just mm. using that to make things sound, in inverted commas, exotic. This album feels 
you know, I feel that Ashby manages to channel a more refined approach to incorporating that Eastern influence as opposed to just merely tacking it, tacking it on for exoticism. Yeah. Um, and she, I think she manages to blend it very well with her own musical style that she was developing, obviously, long long before she released it. She'd already had an incredibly successful career as a, as a harpist, and I think she was a teacher as well, a very prominent figure in the Detroit music community. Theatre work, she did musical direction for plays. Exactly, yeah. Apparently gave um, Ernie Hudson from Ghostbusters his start. Really? Showbiz. Interesting. One of her plays. <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> Harping makes me feel good. But yeah, a fantastic album. And so I was thinking, how, how, how can I, where, where can I go from there? And obviously you can go through the usual connections from either lineup, same artist, label, etc. I thought to do something a little more interesting and left of, left of field. Um, so I've gone for another jazz track, which makes prominent use of the kalimba. Uh. And that track is Stanley Cowell's Travelling Man from his album Musa. Ancestral Streams, which was released in 1974 on Strata East Records. playing a duet with himself on the road yeah it must have been probably overdubbing wow yeah it's a really really cool record i mean the 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 whole um the whole album it's from is a solo piano album right and they're all very um, kind of intimate compositions and it's not the the first iteration of this track this is quite a well-known track from cal this may be the most famous version of it but he recorded the track numerous times over his career um the first appearance of it as far as i know was on his um first album from 1969 which was Blues for the Viet Cong but instead of using a kalimba um, finger symbols are used but this is very much probably the most kind of earthy and almost lo-fi version of it sure but I think it's many people's favorite version of the track and for good reason you know there's something about having the the, the roads and the, the kalimba complement each other so well if you don't know Stanley Cowell we've mentioned him in every episode so far but he died in 2020 uh, one of many musicians lost that year. And yeah, fantastic pianist. I mean, people know him. Mainly his legacy was he, uh, along with Char- trumpeter Charles Tolliver, uh, founded Strata East Records um, in 1971, which was um, probably the most famous and successful US independent jazz label of the 70s. Um, it had over 50 releases on the label, often these kind of private labels and independent Jazz labels throughout the 70s were like a one-and-done kind of thing. They were short-lived. But Strata East managed to really, you know, remain a force to be reckoned with, um, had a really wide variety of releases on there. Obviously, throughout the 70s, there was a lot of focus on um, from the Black Power movement in the 60s. It had a great effect on black musicians, and there was more of a focus on self-reliance, entrepreneurship, self-determination. These were Cal's words himself. Um, about the motivation to start the label. And what was revolutionary about Strata East is that um, 
artists were given full artistic control and ownership of their music, which was pretty revolutionary for the time, you know, especially in the music industry. Um, and commercial success was not really the concern. It was the priority was on creative freedom um, and it was on the community and the control that these artists had over their own music. Um, and again, really, the, the, the inspiration for starting the label came out of um, Cowell and Tolliver's frustration at not being able to release their own music. Um, there were no labels that wanted to release their albums in the late 60s, and so they decided to put it out themselves. And that's what spurred the, the beginning of uh, Strata East. Where do you go from there? So from there, um, I kept on the link with uh, Strata East, this time by Music Inc. And the track is called Oriental, Oriental, with an E on the end, and it's from Live at the Slugs, Volume 1. Um, recorded in 1970, but not released until 1972. Um, on Strata East Records. like you saw in the 60s but with a, a more being informed by funk and everything like that yeah. you know almost coming in in a slightly more you know driving sound and a bit more of a, a, a youthful sound yeah it is a new type of jazz it's mixing in influence from free and avant-garde I mean that's what really post-bop was you know it was seeing yeah. you know the hard bop formula but incorporating these new approaches and definitely Strata East there's a lot of records that veer into free jazz territory sitting alongside these amazing bits of spiritual jazz and jazz yeah. funk and all of this. And they had a real uh, breadth of releases on the label, which made them so appealing to collectors. And, and it's that independence, the kind of refusal to concede to commercial whims. Yeah. You don't make a 17-minute track like that if you don't have something that you want to say. Definitely. If you're just I mean, like, yeah. oh, I'm just tossing this off to make a quick buck, you're not going to do it. Exactly. Get your nine-piece. Yeah. It was oh. very much, there was an intent in the music that was put out on Strata East. There was a reason why it was put out, um, and these musicians had something to say, and they were going to, uh, they were going to tell everyone. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, this, um, this album, Live at Slugs, before it was a, a jazz venue, it was a Ukrainian restaurant and bar, um, and then it became a bar where local drug dealers would hang out um, to kind of meet and talk business and then afterwards it was yeah opened as a as a jazz bar and it over the years it gained a reputation as being a real kind of musicians bar where musicians New York musicians would go hang out um, you had people like Sun Ra and the orchestra were playing there regularly and there's there all the time they also had people like Sonny Rollins Archie Shep came by there as well uh, for some quite famous um, sessions also famously Lee Morgan was tragically killed there um, in 1972, so just before it closed, the story of which is obviously very well documented in the fantastic documentary, I called him Morgan. Casper Collins, 2016 film. Yeah, really good. I think it's on Netflix. I think one of the best jazz documentaries I've seen. So from there, I have gone with another um, track by the name of Oriental. So the same composition. And this is the first version of the track, but it's from Bobby Hutchison's album, uh, Medina, 
which was like um, Patterns, which we looked at in the last uh, episode, was another one of these shelved Blue Note albums recorded in 1969, and it wasn't released until 1980. cracking album from Hutch um, really good lineup as well instead so uh, you've got Harold Land this time on tenor sax and flute so we saw James Spaulding on patterns but Harold Land again a bit like Joe Chambers who also appears on this album he was another partner in crime to Bobby Hutchison mm-hmm. and they released a, a really good slew of um, records together under each other's respective names Harold Land you find Bobby Hutchison popping up on his records and originally because Hutch had to leave New York when he lost his musician's license for smoking smoking, a joint smoking dope in Central Park with Joe Chambers I think it was so he goes to the west coast where Harold Land had stayed despite being a bebop saxophonist Mm. uh, because he was raising a family so in a way he had never got his dues by not being part of the New York scene yeah it's weird he's living living on the west coast but the sound was very much yeah, you know, in with the kind of the New York crowd, and he never fit in with the West Coast particularly. The kind that of cool jazz the cool side. Yeah. So yeah, this is a, a great meeting that happened as a kind of unfortunate accident. Exactly. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing stuff. A really, a really great duo of musicians. Um, really, some amazing stuff. Where do you go from there? So from there, um, I followed the uh, the theme of Medina. So obviously, we're moving from an album called Medina. And I thought I would move to a track called Medina, this time by saxophonist Jackie McLean in collaboration with Tina Brooks. Um, It's from the album Street Singer, and it was recorded in 1960 and released in 1980 on Blue Note. So again, another one of these shelved sessions, you know, sat on the shelf for 20 years and uh, it wasn't until 1980 they decided to release it. So yeah, this is um, Medina from Street Singer. there. Uh, That's Medina by Jackie McLean and Tina Brooks off the album Street Singer. Uh, Great album, uh, great collaboration between the two players. You know, you've got Jackie McLean on alto sax and Tina Brooks on tenor. Complement each other really well. And I originally knew that from Jackie's Bag. Right. The 61 Jackie McLean album, which featured three tracks that would eventually be on Street Singer. Right. A lot of these albums end up being compiled from different sessions. Jackie's Bag is a really good record because, like I say, it's compiled from the two sessions, one of which is the Tina Brooks one with Blue Mitchell, 
on the trumpet and Kenny Drew playing piano, Art Taylor on drums, and then you've also got the Jackie McLean session, which has Donald Byrd on trumpet and Sonny Clark on piano. And Philly, Philly Joe Jones on drums. Yeah. You can't really ask for two better lineups. No, definitely. It's a bit kind of like Horace Silver's kind of song for my father, you know, two different quintets, mm. but playing just great music. I mean, it's funny. So you've obviously, you've, uh, I mean, you've beat me to it with Jackie's bag because that's exactly where I was going on my route. Um, obviously from Medina that you just heard, there's another track on the um, On Street Singer, Appointment in Ghana, um, of which you find this track on Jackie's bag, yeah. which is the same track, the same recording effectively, mm. um, but just on two separate albums, two separate releases. So um, here is Appointment in Ghana by Jackie McLean from Jackie's Back. I mean, I don't know. I wasn't really getting appointment in Ghana vibes from it, though. It's an appointment and they're late for it. And they're, and they're getting there. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing when you actually think about uh, McLean's career. You know, he recorded 21 albums on Blue Note um, between 1959 and 1967, which is crazy, you know. And, and great albums as well. That's the other yeah. thing. We're talking about Hank Mobley in episode one. Uh, Nora for Squares is similar to Appointment in Ghana in its quintessential... Blue note, yeah, essence. But Mobley's tone is so warm and rounded, yeah. Whereas Jackie McLean's has that edge, which is so Definitely. kind of there's that menace through all his music. Hank Mobley feels like drinking ginger ale, whereas Jackie McLean is like drinking a tonic water. It's kind of like got that slight yeah. bitter edge that gets you, you know, you go, oh, it's like bitter. You're lemon. drinking ginger ale, <laughs> but through your eyes. <laughs> Not speaking from any experience there. That leads me, um, as you may have predicted, um, to the final destination, which is Ghana by Donald Byrd from his album Bird in Flight. Yeah, yeah it's definitely so. funkier. On Spotify, interestingly, it's from a uh, it's from a compilation. They don't actually have the original uh, album Bird in Flight on there, but um, they've got a compilation called Back Down to the Tropics. Mm. So it's quite interesting. I mean, the subject matter, when you look at the cover to um, Bird in Flight, you get this imagery of going to somewhere almost tropical and definitely the rhythms there, you know, the way percussions used, the way the drums hit that kind of rim shot. Mm. It definitely has a groove to it. Yeah that definitely makes you think of warmer climes mm. and you know it's got a kind of latin a heavy latin edge to it yeah again 
what a great Bruno album. Catchy, intricate, performances are flawless. Yeah. And, and Donald Byrd was a great composer, always with an eye on African rhythms and constantly trying new things. I mean, we looked at, you know, in the first episode, we looked at his track, um, Christo Redentor, from a new perspective. Again, pushing the boat out, trying it's hard vocal to arrangements. Even think of this as the same guy. But yeah, wicked track. Um, really, really nice pick, man. And definitely, I mean, I've known about that track for a while, but it was you who put me onto that that track and that album, and it's it's great. I love it. That was a really good route. I mean, it feels weird to think we started with Dorothy Ashby, which is such a different sound. To oh yeah, the hard pop. The um, Ashby stuff feels very obviously influenced by. Uh, Indian music, whereas the end of the route has much subtler influences from Africa. Yeah, well, I think that was what was interesting about hard bop, isn't it? Because hard bop, you know, you saw it was this this fusion of bebop with influence from blues, from la- uh, like Latin rhythms, mm. um, from soul, jazz, and things yeah, like that. R&B. So all and gospel, and these influences were bleeding into the music. Mm. And and because New York is such yeah. a melting pot. Definitely. It's obviously where the immigrants come through Ellis Island. Yeah. So you've got the... I mean, look at the Latin, the Latin in all of those Blue Note records. Population. Definitely. It's, it's, it's everywhere. It's kind of the music is very much reflective of um, New York at the time. Yeah. Imagine in the 60s. What was your, what was your route? Which, which route did you take? Did you go the same way? Did you go Ashby to Bird? I did. So starting with the Rubber Out of Dorothy Ashby, Cadet 1970, my next track is from an album called Super Blues by Bo Diddley, Muddy Waters and Little Walter. The track is called Who Do You Love? This came out on Shekka in here i'm gonna fathom a guess i mean it, i know that this this album's on um it was released on checker records originally yeah oh, on chess records cadet records uh that dorothy ashby came out on was a subsidiary of chess and checker that's right checker cadet they're both subsidiaries of chess right but it's more specific than that this is actually okay. recorded in the same studio as the rubber of dorothy ashby oh okay in interesting Chicago. Ah, okay. Nerd zone. Nerd zone. Enter, like the ner- enter the nerd zone. <laughs> Chess, massive label in Chicago. You will probably know them best for Armand Jamal's stuff when he was young, starting out in Chicago. Yeah. It was founded, like Blue Note, by Jewish immigrants from Europe, uh, Phil and Leonard Chess. Hmm. I don't know if that's their real names, probably shortened from something. You should probably um, check, mate. <laughs> But yeah, I think it's interesting. The music industry is so informed by immigration. Mm, and yeah. they named Telmar Studios after their sons, uh, Terry and Marshall. Telmar. 
produced loads of stuff by Bo Diddley. It was like Howling Wolf was on Howling Cadet Wolf. as well. And this is a supergroup mm. in 1967. Bo Diddley and Mighty Waters on guitar. Little Walter playing the harmonica. Yeah. Apparently Little Walter was the first person to deliberately use distortion. Really? Because he, he was a harmonica player, but because he was in blues bands with electric guitars yeah. and couldn't be heard over the sound of the guitar, would cup a microphone in his hand when he played the harmonica and deliberately overdrive the volume and the amps. So he could be heard? Yeah. Interesting. And, that, and apparently no one had really distorted deliberately yeah. their sound. That's interesting. And that must have been what in the... That's the 40s, late 40s. Wow. Yeah, way before Hendrix was doing his thing in the 60s. And... Yeah. No, that's amazing. And Bo Diddley, obviously a rock and roll pioneer. The Bo Diddley beat is a famous rock and roll rhythm, uh, which you don't really hear there. He wrote Who Do You Love in 1956. It's a pun, really, on hoodoo, which is a type of dark magic, yeah. like, like voodoo. Like voodoo. Hence, Who Do You Love? Right. And because it's the end of the 60s, you can see there's a psychedelic-looking cover and what sounds to me a bit like proto 13th floor elevators, the kind of electric jug sound. Yeah, yeah. The psychedelic blues. I think I know where you're going with this somehow. Interesting. <laughs> because in 1969, two years later, Quicksilver Messenger Service. How did I guess? <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going there. Released an album called Happy Trails. Yes. On Capital, which features a 25-minute version of Who Do You Love? From the Fillmore East and or West. No yeah. one is sure where this is recorded. No, too high. Exactly. Everyone's stoned as it hell. It could have like... been spliced together from two different performances, which happened a lot in the San Francisco live. Like our podcast. <laughs> Um, so this is Who Do You Love by Quicksilver Messenger Service. I mean, I knew, that, I knew that track. I didn't know that version. Um, yeah, well, you uh, had a 17-minute track in your route, so I thought, I see your 17 minutes. I'll raise you a 29, except at least on my track, it wasn't just a load of hippies basically getting incredibly stoned and clapping and groaning for about five minutes, which fills up a lot of the track, to be fair. It's incredible. It, <laughs> it, because it starts off as an old rock and roll song. They play the riff and the beat. Every way you can imagine, they completely pull it apart. Yeah. There are some amazing solos. And then it descends into a kind of abstract, it's been described as like a Dardarist found object. Right. It's call and response and hand clapping. If you listen on headphones or a good pair of speakers, you can hear the chants going. Oh, with each other. panning, panning on each side. And then it comes back with this, with this bodily stomping beat yeah and what's amazing is it's the san francisco sound distilled i'm well, not really distilled it's 25 minutes but 
when yeah, but the, in essence if you say you know what is the San Francisco sound yeah. it definitely encapsulates the sound of those bands like Jefferson Airplane Grateful Dead yeah, yeah I'd say this is up there with Live Dead by the Grateful Dead mm. as a certainly in terms of a live document of what that scene was yeah I mean it's the sound of people tripping it's basically. the sound of people tripping and but, also managing to make music at the same time yeah just about and it's and because it's where blues becomes hard rock essentially mm. Yeah. And, you, and you can hear it you can always hear the pivot point in that song yeah yeah, yeah. it's really incredible I mean credit to credit to those artists Bo Diddley you know Howling Wolf all these all these fantastic blues artists that really paved the way for those mm-hmm. bands you know if it wasn't for those bands you wouldn't have had Janis Joplin and you wouldn't have had Grateful Dead and... yeah and interestingly so the Fillmore West was briefly run by a kind of cooperative of all the bands you just mentioned yeah uh, before Bill Graham took it over. Uh, it was part of his rock and roll empire. Bill Graham was an empresario mm. who ran loads of music venues. Uh, the Fillmore East, of course, in New York. Which is amazing. If you look at the Fillmore East, that crossover between psych, psych rock and hard rock and jazz. Yeah. And so you see these lineups and there's that, I think it was that poster where you see the Grateful Dead nestled side by side with Sun Ra. Yeah. Uh, or you see, you Miles know, Davis. Miles Davis, you who. know, seeing, yeah, side by side with The Who and Jefferson Airplane. And you're like, okay, cool. But it makes sense. Yeah. You know, at the time, you know, you had the, anyone who was getting into, you know, jazz coming from it from rock. You know, these albums like Bitches Brew and stuff were a massive hit with the rock crowd. I think there was a lot of animosity towards Bill Graham as well, because he was making a lot of money running this scene. Yeah. Which was a hippie scene. It was a hippie movement. And Bill Graham was getting very rich. But there was also, obviously, a great debt owed to him. Because he was putting on this music. He was a proper promoter and a businessman. Yeah. And without him, I mean, we see what happens when the Grateful Dead try to put on concerts themselves. It doesn't end well. No. Um, the Kool-Aid gets spiked. So that brings me to my next track, which is recorded at the Fillmore West. Right. It's from the album Santana 3 by Santana. And it's called... Toussaint Louverture. Nailed the pronunciation. You know, everyone going ham on percussion, got funky organ going. Bill Graham also managed Santana. Right, interesting. As well as running the Fillmore West, where that was recorded. That was eventually released as a bonus disc, that whole concert. Yeah. From 1971, uh, came out on the Legacy Edition of Santana 3. Right. Uh, Santana 3 is also known as The Man with the Outstretched Hand. The Man with the Outstretched Hand, is that the, the weird naked dude on the front? Yeah. Yeah, why do they call it Santana 3? The man with the outstretched hand. It's much better. It sounds so much better. Yeah. You know. It's the last album that features the original lineup, the Woodstock lineup of Santana. Yeah, and if anyone has not seen that original footage of Santana at Woodstock, get on YouTube. 
and watch it because Nin- it's awesome. Nineteen-year-old Michael Shreve playing, just shredding one it. One of the most incredible drums I've ever. Shredding it on the drums. Santander have had so many lineups that several other bands have splintered off of them, including Journey. Uh, we wrote about this on Jazz Impressions when we wrote about uh, Welcome. Yes. Which is the end of a really incredible run of records by Santana. They just always have, obviously, the Latin thing, jazz influence. Carlos Santana plays these smoking, sultry lines. He's just one of the best guitarists still around. Definitely. I mean, there's that great, the, the, the great record um, where he uh, collabs with um, John McLaughlin. Mm. Um, and uh, what's the track called? I Love Divine. Yeah. And it's got the two of them just shredding it. Um, and it, that track just builds and builds and builds. It's kind of like that Mahavishnu energy mm. featuring Santana. And that's just an incredible track. I think it's Billy Cobham on drums. It's just like, I love divine. And it just swells and swells. It's just like everyone is just going for it. He's... And it feels almost kind of spiritual and cosmic. It's mm. channeling that like Coltrane influence. And I think the whole album, if I'm correct, I think it was a tribute to Coltrane. Yeah, it was. But yeah, really, really great musician. I feel there's a real humanity and soul to Santana's playing that is lost in some of the kind of jazzier guitar stuff. Yeah. You really feel what he plays. Yeah, definitely. That track is named after Toussaint Louverture, the general of the Haitian Revolution. Oh, right. Which was it started in 1791, which interestingly is 1971 backwards, which is when this album came out. Oh, Illuminati. <laughs> Illuminati. Ooh. He, he, was, he was known as the father of Haiti, led them in their battle for independence. Right. My next track is Ghana by Donald Byrd. Oh, okay. Which may sound like it isn't a link, but do you know what Donald Byrd's full name is? It better have Haiti in the name. Close. It's Donaldson Toussaint Louverture Byrd II. Is it? So Donald Byrd is named after that same Haitian general. <laughs> well, there we go. How's that for a link? That's a pretty good link. I think you've single-handedly... I mean, this is not really a competition. <laughs> this is a collaborative project about you know musical exploration. But I think if this was a competition, that was that's the game end of there. Right? That's checkmate. Thank you. <laughs> Chessmate, as uh, Ahmad Jamal wouldn't have said. Yeah. Donald Byrd said the idea of a namesake is to remind you what you're supposed to be about. Mm. So evidently, the fact that his parents had named him after a revolutionary general influenced him. Definitely. Because he was always trying to educate people. He was one of the most educationally decorated people in jazz that I can think of. He had three master's degrees. He had a law degree and he had a doctorate. Wow. He taught... Got to catch them all. Yeah. He taught at universities all over America and ended up being in bands with a lot of his students because... Well, wasn't there... I think it was the Blackbirds. Blackbirds. The Blackbirds were his students, effectively. Then you've got um, Mizell Brothers, Larry Larry Mizell and Fonce Mizell. Who became his producers and incredibly prolific. People will know the Mizell sound from those classic uh, rare groove albums that Donald Byrd put out in the 70s, uh, Stepping Into Tomorrow and Places and Spaces. And they produced uh, Michael Jackson as well. Yeah, a whole host of a whole host of great, great artists. And he was one of these musicians who constantly had his ear to the ground, listening to what his students were into. 
Yeah. So he didn't lose touch, like we were saying in the last episode. Well, it's interesting when you when you look at Donald Byrd's career, you do see towards the end of the sixties, you know, these albums like um, Slow Drag, Electric Bird, Ethiopian Nights, and then Blackbird in nineteen seventy three and Street Lady. They're yeah. all, you know, heading towards that funkier sound. And you can already hear that. Yeah. Um, and then obviously the stuff that he was doing with um, the Blackbirds as well. Yeah. Funk, fusion, rock. It's all there. And then eventually that would become the foundation of so much hip hop. Yeah. And it's interesting that he was influenced by young musicians who he was in turn influencing. I mean, he had been at the vanguard of the hard bop revolution that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. So there was this symbiotic relationship between him and his students that would eventually become hip-hop as we know it yeah definitely it's really interesting i mean it's i mean when you look at the history of hip-hop it really is that it's taking it's it's got a lot in common with jazz in the same way that both genres are about taking what's come before and building on that you know and really i mean it's a healthy model for any sort of creative outlook you know you should be taking on what's come before studying that learning that flipping it into something new recontextualizing it making it relevant to now Mm. um and to your own situation and your own perspective yeah i think that's really what jazz and hip-hop really have in in common with one another they are forward moving art forms donald bird wanted to be a link i think between academia and popular music miles davis talked about this as well when you go to juilliard as miles did he found it oppressive in how white and sort of classically oriented the programmes were. Donald Byrd was instrumental in pushing jazz and black music at these institutions. Byrd said that you couldn't practice uh, non-classical, quote-unquote, forms of music in some of the practice rooms. Right. Uh, You couldn't play jazz or R&B. And Donald Byrd wanted people to kick down that door and say... There's places, there's spaces, and I'm getting funky here. <laughs> but yeah, that's great, man. Really, uh, really cool link. Again, completely different to mine. Just goes to show how fun it is, you know, doing this kind of, uh, this yeah. kind of project. Obviously, there's so many links you can make. So that brings us to the end of um, our third episode of Roots, a Jazz Impressions podcast. Um, we hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to follow, um, subscribe on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. We're on Spotify, Apple Music, Overcast. Uh, We've also got our stuff on Podbean and SoundCloud. Um, Check out the blog as well. Um, We've got a whole load of articles that we wrote um, last year and all sorts of stuff. We've mentioned quite a few things recently as well. And as always, uh, let us know in the comments on Instagram or Twitter um, what routes you would have picked. You know, if you were given those two tracks, what what were the, the musical links you would have made between the two? We'd be interested to hear what paths you guys would have taken. Join us again soon for another round of routes, and don't forget, if there's something strange in your neighbourhood, who are you gonna call? Dr. Ashley. Mm-hmm.